Good evening. This is Lehigh Valley Discourse, and you are listening to the Elchar Chronicles. I am your host, Karen Elchar. The program chronicles issues of law and order and our local justice system, the environment, and indigenous history with special guests that dig deep into topics less talked about here in the Lehigh Valley. This evening, our topic is the recently issued American Rivers Report, which ranked the Lehigh River as the seventh most endangered river in the United States. We'll discuss the importance of the Lehigh River to our community, the issues identified in the report, and potential recommendations to address those issues. I'm pleased to welcome my guests, Leah Mastropolo, the American Rivers Director, Clean Water Supply for the Mid-Atlantic, and Pennsylvania State Representative Joshua Siegel, representing the 22nd Legislative District of Lehigh County, whose committee assignments include appropriations, housing and community development, transportation, as well as state government. My thanks to both of you for joining me today. Glad to be here. Thank you. Really happy to have the opportunity to talk with you both today. So I'd like to begin with Leah. Please lay the groundwork regarding the organization, American Rivers, and your role as Director for Clean Water Supply for the Mid-Atlantic region. American Rivers is a national river conservation organization that's focused on clean water and river health. We are known for our policy and advocacy work, although we also have teams working across the country on local projects to protect and restore rivers, mostly through partnerships. We were founded in 1973 as a small group of people working back then primarily to advance the Federal Wild and Scenic Rivers Act programs. This year, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary. So I personally am part of our National Clean Water Program, which advocates for regulations and funding and programs to preserve clean rivers and clean up pollution, especially under changing climate conditions. And one of the biggest barriers to healthy, clean rivers is really storm runoff from all the paved developed lands. And this can be hard to manage because it's everywhere. And so that is where a lot of my work personally is focused. And then although I'm part of this national team, the majority of my work is here in the mid-Atlantic states and especially here in Pennsylvania. So I work with local and regional environmental groups to advance strategies for protecting clean water. But I also work with municipalities to some extent to help them secure the funding that they need to be able to protect and restore their local streams. And you, American Rivers, recently issued a report identifying the Lehigh River as the seventh most endangered river in the U.S. And why are rivers important to communities? So an interesting fact is that everyone in our country lives, or just about everyone in our country, lives within one mile of a river. Although many people are not actually aware of that because they can be small streams that are hard to see. And then, of course, much of our drinking water comes directly from rivers, and so clean water is essential to everybody's health. Natural river habitats support thousands of plant and animal species that are actually very, very rich in terms of biodiversity. And then both our cities and our agricultural communities also depend on abundant clean water for, for growth and for economy. And Then in addition to all that, for many of us, rivers offer recreation and sort of a special way to connect with nature. So what's the process by which rivers are identified as endangered? What are the criteria? So America's Most Endangered Rivers is an annual listing that is meant to amplify the voices of local leaders who are speaking up for rivers that are at risk. And so this program is in its 38th year. 
Each year, the campaign raises awareness and mobilizes the public to act on key decisions that have been identified to be able to deliver real results for rivers. And so the way this works is we review most endangered river nominations from local groups. We have an open call for nominations by individuals or organizations, really, across the country. And then we select the top 10 rivers based on three criteria. So the first is the river's significance to people and wildlife, which also has elements of sort of the, the scale of the system in that first point. The second is the magnitude of the threat to the river and to the communities, especially in light of climate change and in light of environmental justice issues. And then the third, which is really kind of key, is whether or not there's a decision coming up in the next 12 months that the public can influence. So there's a lot of rivers that are endangered, but we want to make sure that rivers that make our list are ones where there, there's action that can be taken from the listing. And so it's, it's rare that a river will appear on the list two years in a row. And when a river does repeat, so for example, the second year in a row that the Colorado River has topped our list, that really underscores the magnitude of the threat and indicates that public action is really critical. So how did you actually come to identify the, the Lehigh River? So the Lehigh River is a really special place in this part of the country, right? Part of it is designated as one of Pennsylvania's scenic rivers, and the headwaters are considered to be exceptional value by this system that, that the state uses. But it's also the backyard river for half a million people in the Lehigh Valley. It's really accessible. And it's also accessible from the major urban centers of Philadelphia and New York City. And so people can travel there for whitewater rafting um, and kayaking and for hiking and biking without having to go really far out of the region, right? It's, it's a special resource that's nearby. Um, but the Lehigh is also, it's also a direct drinking water source for hundreds of thousands of people. And as a tributary to the Delaware River, it actually supports the drinking water system for millions of people downstream who draw their drinking water from that system. And so that includes the city of Philadelphia and all that development in that area. So there's a lot of people who are getting their drinking water source from, you know, what began in the Lehigh River. So most recently, the region has been undergoing a really large scale shift in terms of land use, right? As you're both well familiar, transforming into sort of the shipping and logistics hub of the Eastern Seaboard. There's, I think, about four square miles of warehouses and distribution centers that have been built to date, which is several thousand acres. It's a lot of land. And that is really unprecedented in this region. And all this rapid development of open space is putting the river's health at risk. And as you listed in your report, um, the threats, 44% of the assessed water bays in, in the U.S. are too polluted for fishing or swimming. Um, another threat you've identified overall, not necessarily only here within the Lehigh River context, but 7.2 million Americans every year get sick from diseases spread through the water. Climate change can increase toxic algae outbreaks in the rivers and other water bodies, which are harmful to people, wildlife, and pets, and more than 14 million properties in the U.S. are at risk at flooding. And we can state that many of these potential threats could be found here within the context of the Lehigh River. Would you say that's a viable uh, assessment? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's there's the recreational value of the river, and then there's all of the public health considerations for clean water. And I'd like to talk a little bit about how the impacts are felt in different parts of the watershed, because I think that's important to understanding how the threats really play out locally. So when it rains on a big developed area like a warehouse complex, the water runs off quickly rather than infiltrating into the ground as it would in a more natural landscape. And the water that runs off the pavement is, it's just, it's warmer, it's carrying more sediment, can carry all sorts of pollution from the trucks and the fuel. And it also enters the stream or river much faster. And so that leads to higher flows and risks of erosion and also flooding downstream. And so although developers do put controls in place to manage the worst of this, there's no way to get the natural hydrology back once it's lost. So what that looks like in terms of threats to this river is really different in different parts of the watershed. So in the Lehigh Valley, it's been mostly old farmland that's been developed, and there's really not that much open space left at this point. And because that part of the river has already had a lot of legacy pollution, this is cumulative impacts for the river, and it's cumulative for the people who are already dealing with all the other environmental impacts that go along with warehouse development, like air pollution and noise and traffic. In the Poconos, where the headwaters are to the Lehigh, there's a lot of really small, pristine streams. And there's been less development to date in that area, but it is picking up momentum. And it has the potential to be even more damaging from an ecological perspective because the the condition of the river is is really good up in the headwaters. And so these threats are very different in different places. And and together, I think, taken together, it's potentially really, really impactful to the river. And so for rivers like the Lehigh, I think we need more systems in place to really ensure that development is managed in a responsible way, not to prevent development, right? So that brings me to the third part of the listing criteria, which is there being some sort of upcoming decision that can be influenced. And so what we're hoping for this year is just a little bit more protection for Pennsylvania's waterways through potentially two things, and and maybe more. We can talk more about that. But um, the first thing that really stands out is full fair share funding for the Delaware River Basin Commission. So that commission is an interstate agency that is responsible for managing water resources for the whole Delaware watershed, including the Lehigh River. They have a critical role to play in overseeing land development projects, but they've been sort of chronically underfunded through the years. And so we'd really like to see them fully funded this year. And ideally, we'd like to see them have permanent fair share funding established so that they can manage this process more closely. The second thing that we'd love to see would be some clearer state-level protections for development that happens alongside rivers and streams, and also maybe stronger directives or incentives for watershed-based planning. And there seems to be some interest in this among some members of the House, and I'd love to chat about that a little bit more with Representative Siegel. And so we're hoping that the timing might be right now to advance these priorities this year. Well, all very, very excellent points, Um, and we will um, hear from Representative Siegel shortly, and then we're also going to continue then with having a dialogue between the both of you. 
question, answer, nice dialogue. So at this point, I think we're going to take a short break. You are listening to the Elchar Chronicles with my guests, Ms. Leah Mastropolo with American Rivers and Pennsylvania State Representative Joshua Siegel discussing the recently released report identifying the Lehigh River as the seventh most endangered river in the U.S. Do stay tuned. Thank you to the members of WDIY for making all the programming you hear possible. Becoming a WDIY member is the best way to support your listening and to ensure WDIY will be here for the next person in our community to discover. Make your membership gift today at 610-694-8100 extension 4 or WDIY.org. We couldn't be here without you. Welcome back to the Elchar Chronicles. We're talking with Leah Mustropolo of the American Rivers and PA State Representative Joshua Siegel about the recent identification that the Lehigh River ranks seventh as the most endangered river in the U.S. Prior to the break, we discussed portions of the report and the criteria used to determine endangered rivers. And now I'd like to turn to State Representative Siegel. First, my full disclosure, I, as a former director of the Allentown Department of Parks and Recreation, in my opinion, found Representative Siegel a supportive advocate on environmental issues while serving in his former capacity as a member of Allentown City Council, and I personally sincerely appreciated that. So, Representative Siegel, what are your thoughts on the American River's recent report? Well, I think it's troubling, and, and, and as a former Allentown City Council member and someone who worked with you very judiciously on making sure that the city was a safe and fun place for families, specifically for recreation, I think the report highlights some of the problematic ways that the Lehigh Valley has grown and developed. The report cited two key factors in determining why the river was endangered in the first place, and that was the warehouses and the proliferation of those warehouses, and then just poor planning in general. And as a member of the, you know, Pennsylvania uh, state legislature and someone who represents a city, I've often believed in the value of, you know, smart growth, smart urban development, and making sure that we develop our communities in a way that not only respects our natural environment, but also respects the way that we bring people together and we build our sense of community. Um, And I think of the fact that the Lehigh Valley is going to have another 100,000 residents by 2050. So the growth in this region is explosive, it's persistent, and it's not going to abate or stop anytime soon. Um, And I think the report highlights the urgency with which we as a legislature, and more importantly, how local leaders, mayors, county executives, county commissioners, and city council need to work collaboratively to make sure that when we're developing the valley, when we're you know, building warehouses that we're working proactively and judiciously with those warehouse developers to make sure that they're building sufficient infrastructure on site using maybe permeable asphalt or permeable surface to make sure there's not so much stormwater runoff, that they're planting natural vegetation and they're consulting with environmental experts to make the warehouse as least disruptive as possible. Um, And working with our municipalities so that when new housing developments go in, they're built in a fashion that doesn't contain elements of sprawl, that they're built in a way that reflects the need for denser, walkable, smarter communities that consume less of our natural space. And I think, um, hopefully, to to Leah's point, that there are public forums and discussions coming up. There are always opportunities for us to engage in our communities, whether it be the cities, the suburbs, in how development is shaped and how we choose to zone our municipalities. Um, And continuing the suburban sprawl of these large single-family plots, these large housing developments, and the warehouses that surround them is not a sustainable pattern. 
Uh, and we have an obligation for future generations in the Valley, I think, to make sure that we maintain the natural beauty. Part of the, I think, the grace and grandiosity that the Valley has to offer is that balance between urban and rural and city and open space. You're never far from a trail or a stream or a river. And the Lehigh runs directly through Allentown, and we're proud of our waterfront. We've worked to redevelop it and make it a destination for folks to come to. And it would be all too tragic that if we finally rebuilt the waterfront, the waterfront itself was not actually something that people could partake in, whether that be boating, uh, rafting. I mean, even Lehigh University uses it for their rowing team. And so I think it would be a tragedy that such a great community space was so poorly managed and so improperly cared for right at a time when the valley and the city is actually starting to appreciate the significance of that river, not just as an economic development asset, but really as a place for the community to congregate and as something that just adds to the natural beauty of the city and the region as a whole. So your current committee assignments include appropriations, which Leah also had referred to earlier, housing and community development, which obviously plays a major role with this particular issue, transportation, also valid component, and of course, you're also in state government. So can you envision potential opportunities within any of your committees to address some of the issues identified in this report? Absolutely. And, you know, I think specifically the first three that you mentioned, I think all intersect in terms of our ability to address the concerns in the report. So when I think of, you know, poor planning, I think the ability to serve on housing and community development and provide state incentives and create better state guidelines for how we build our communities and encourage and incentivize smarter and sensible development uh, is going to go a long way to, I think, addressing the concerns of the report. Uh, the state has a huge role to play in shaping um, the municipal planning code and the way that municipalities govern themselves in terms of zoning and the decisions they make. And we also have a role to play in terms of pro not providing you know, financial incentives or a carrot and stick approach to make sure that we are pushing development uh, and growth in a responsible and managed fashion and that it's sustainable and most importantly, you know, responsible. And so I think from that perspective, housing and community development is key. Uh, we know with 100,000 more residents coming to the Valley, if we don't find a way to house them responsibly and appropriately, um, we could do it the wrong way. Um, and, and we could certainly continue to sprawl out and consume all of our natural space. We could absorb the, the last of the, you know, the, the open land in the valley. Or we can build it in a way where those communities are walkable, accessible, attainable, mixed use, where we are responsibly and, and appropriately using the most minimal amount of land as possible to build truly vibrant communities. And so I think from a housing community development perspective, serving that committee is going to put me in a driver's seat to shape those conversations and, and certainly transportation as well. You know, we are one of the largest metropolitan statistical areas in the United States not to really be served by true reliable public transit in the form of trains or, you know, a regional rail system. And so I think about when we're building the region and we're trying to reduce the amount of land we use, we need to make sure that we've got good public transit for folks so that they use less automobiles, that they're, you know, less reliant on cars and gasoline. Uh, and that they're, you know, using multimodal transportation. That's another exciting opportunity is that we can encourage more folks to walk, to bike, e-scooter, or more importantly, take the bus or hopefully one day take the train. Uh, and I think that will go a long way to, you know, reduce the need to sprawl our municipalities out, to reduce the need for us to build such an auto-centric society, which in turn feeds environmental pollution, you know, feeds you know, CO2 emissions. And hopefully, you know, that will reduce the amount of congestion on our roads, the number of times that trucks are idling, and, and hopefully make the valley a little less dependent on, you know, 
automobiles and gasoline. And then obviously appropriations is, I think, key because it ties it all together. And it puts me in a place to advocate for making sure that we've got appropriate resources behind those incentives and those carrot and stick approaches. And Leah mentioned something very important, which is that for the last you know, several years, really, the state has not done its fair share or played its fair share uh, in properly financing the Delaware River, you know, Basin Commission. And this year, they've asked for $893,000, which I think would be the, the full amount that they need. Um, and I think historically, in the past, the budget has been closer to about 215000 maybe a little bit more. Um, so we are, I think, in terms of the states that are a member of that commission, the lowest contributor overall. So we have not done our part as a regional partner, as a state partner, in making sure that we are playing a role in responsibly managing our waterways. Uh, so that's something on appropriations that I absolutely want to be an advocate for, is making sure that we are making the proper monetary investments in ensuring that our commissions and our staff have the capacity to properly do testing, to manage land development, to give us guidance. You know, the great thing about the commission is it's a resource for us as legislators. They do research, they can they you know they can be a, a go-between, they can provide us with facts and figures and most importantly, policy expertise. And beyond that, and something I think wasn't addressed yet, is our Department of Environmental Protection has been emaciated over the years. We do not have a sufficient amount of um, environmental investigators or individuals that can hold polluters accountable. And I think that that's another component that has to be mentioned is on appropriations, I want to make sure that our Department of Environmental Protection is given the resources it needs to hold polluters accountable, to make sure that when individuals disregard the quality of our environment, the sanctity of our, our land and our waterways, they're held accountable. And we have historically not done that in Pennsylvania through emaciating the state, really starving the state of its capacity. And so when we do that, I also think it means that the state does its job to ensure that bad actors are held accountable and that we take a clear stand and we say that part of Pennsylvania's beauty is its natural beauty. Part of the allure of our state is its open space, is its great state park system. Um, and the fact that we make a great deal of money off tourism from folks that want to come here and get away from overly urbanized and overly dense areas. And if we lose that beauty, I think Pennsylvania loses a part of itself. So we've got to also hold folks accountable that have no regard for that natural beauty. Excellent points on all front. And I think our listening audience, as well as Leah, finds everything you've said very pertinent and hopefully looks forward to movement in those directions. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, Leah, you had mentioned earlier that one of the things, one of the items that is discussed in identifying some of the rivers that are placed on this list, you mentioned there's a decision in the next 12 months to address issues. What decision is that? So, um, well, first, I guess, thank you, Representative Siegel, for touching on those really important points. I think that the, the funding for DEP is, is so, so critical. And I, I really appreciate your attention to smart growth and sort of approaching this development in a sustainable way. There are a couple different things I think that I would love to see happen at the state level that, that would be really supportive to rivers and also to how our local governments sort of are able to handle the process. And it's, I think, maybe a little bit early for me to be referencing specific bills. I don't, I don't know that anything has been fully introduced into the committees yet, but um, one of the things that I know there's been conversation over the past couple of years and forget which year, um, there, there was a riparian buffer bill that did not pass a few years ago, and that, that would have limited development 
right up against rivers. And so that is a really, really good tool for making sure that as these really big projects happen, at least they're not happening right up next to the stream. And so having some sort of buffer in between the the river or the stream and all the pavement and all the runoff that comes from that is so valuable. And that's something that local governments can ask for that, but it's also something that the state can put in place. And so I think that that, that would be that would be a fantastic opportunity for Pennsylvania to start to manage development across the board, across the state. But I think one of the things that I'm seeing highlighted and what's happening in the Lehigh watershed is the sort of practical challenges that local governments face in influencing these kinds of big land development projects. And I think part of that has to do with how small our local governments are in Pennsylvania and just sort of like the the landscape and the capacity of of how land use is managed here. Um, And so there's a legal aspect of that, I think. And you mentioned the um, municipal planning code, which I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on that. But then there's also capacity issues when most of our planning and zoning boards are staffed by volunteers. And so I guess maybe this is a, a question for Representative Siegel, but as a former local government official who's, who's now in state government, I guess I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how local governments can sort of make the best use of their influence in these situations, or alternatively, how, how individuals or environmental groups can be supportive of this. Yeah. And also how, you know, how the state, what, what the role of the state is there as well. Yeah, well, let me start let's sort of the top and work my way down. So from a state perspective, I'm actually working on a bill that's modeled after something that they've done in the state of Connecticut um, that required training for all those members that served on zoning boards. So the idea was to make sure that any member of a zoning board, because they are volunteer, that the municipality would provide them with about 10 hours of training around things like smart growth, smart development, fair housing, uh, environmental policy, so that they could make a little bit more informed decisions when it came to reviewing you know, development in within their municipality or within their jurisdiction. Um, I do think that that's a huge problem is our development, our, our zoning commissions are, are staffed by folks that aren't necessarily experts. Um, you know, they might have some background in real estate, they might have a moderate background in, you know, like municipal law, but they're not necessarily, in, you know, experts in planning and development. They're not career professionals in managing urban growth, rural growth. And so I, one of the things I want to try to do to the best of our ability in the state is to the extent that we can try to professionalize those zoning boards and give them a little bit more depth of knowledge so that when they're in those rooms, that they're not at a tremendous disadvantage. Because I often think, you know, developers come in, they can have their lawyers speak, and they can kind of run circles around zoning boards sometimes with, you know, specific plans or proposals and uh, just the way that they present things. And I think that puts our zoning boards at a disadvantage. So that's the first thing I want to do is make sure that as a state, we're investing in and encouraging our zoning boards to be more professionalized, more experienced, and more knowledgeable so that they're capable of being a balancing act against developers who do have a disproportionate amount of power just because they have all the expertise, resources, and knowledge. And then from a local perspective, one of the things that the planning commission here has been very successful in, and I think the counties could encourage more, is multi-municipal planning. So obviously the way that our municipal planning code functions now in Pennsylvania is that every municipality by law is obligated to have every potential zoning use accounted for within their code, which means that even if they're overbuilt in many respects, they still have to allow industrial development and a lot of high-density development or heavy industrial development that they may actually no longer be appropriately capable of handling. But if you work collaboratively with surrounding municipalities and do multi-municipal planning, 
other municipalities can kind of take the load off or take the share, which allows us as a region to sort of better allocate or better utilize land and reduce the overall amount of warehouse growth or industrial growth. And so I think that that's something that our local governments need to do in order to be a little more proactive. And then also, I think, ultimately, recognizing that zoning is one of the most powerful tools in the country. And in some forms or fashions, it does hurt us. If you look at from a housing attainability perspective, I think zoning has been a real problem and an arbitrary barrier to really good growth. Um, but in this case, I think municipalities often don't understand the power um, that their zoning has in terms of putting standards and specifications on uh, local development. Uh, there was an article in the Morning Call not that long ago about how a couple of rural municipalities here in the Valley have very successfully negotiated and been aggressive with uh, industrial developers about the types of uh, land use requirements that when they're going to build an industrial facility in their municipality. And so they've been, they've worked with local environmental advocates uh, from our colleges and our universities um, to create better guidelines and standards so that when these industrial developments occur, because they're, you know, unavoidable to a large extent, they're done in a manner where the municipality is making really good informed decisions from a policy perspective. Uh, and it was some of the stuff I mentioned earlier about uh, making sure that they're planting more vegetation, vegetation that matches the surrounding landscape, um, being more responsible with the amount of per, you know, impermeable surface that they're using, trying to just be more environmentally sustainable in general, whether that be you know solar on the facility. Um, so I do think local government has a lot of power. It is often a capacity issue, but we do have great regional resources that can ameliorate some of those capacity problems. That's why the Planning Commission is such a great resource. But I do think the state has a role to play, and I think uh, modernizing the municipal, you know, the, the MPC to make sure that municipalities have more tools at their disposal um, and ultimately provide additional resources so that when they're at that table negotiating with a developer that they have, you know, really equal chance and equal opportunity to, to be an equal participant in that discussion because I do think they're often at a disadvantage. I love this idea of codifying the multi-municipal planning approach a little bit more. That's something that I and, you know, watershed advocates have been wanting to see more of in Pennsylvania for years and is really, really so important mm -hmm. for water resources as for smart growth and all of these other things that are important to developing vibrant communities. So I'm really, really happy to hear that. Maybe related to that question, I guess, okay. I, I wanted to ask you the the problems that are facing our rivers and, and really all of our environmental resources right now are connected in a really deep way, I think, to our economic landscape and issues of social justice. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, I guess, from your experience on council or more recently, can you point to any examples of local work that's been really successful at advancing those sorts of social and environmental issues in tandem? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I think most of is really like our built environment. I think of like the way that, you know, for example, you know, here in the valley, because we have such high volume of truck traffic in the summer, uh, the particulate matter in our atmosphere is uh, worse than probably about any other region in the country. And we have, you know, higher rates of asthma and respiratory issues, particularly amongst, uh, you know, our, our, our younger children. Uh, and that's compounded by some of the more like expansive definition of environmental justice, which is like their housing quality, right? We have a, like a large concentration of like lead paint, older homes, mold in the walls. And, you know, like, it's not necessarily related to, I would say, rivers, but uh, there's a piece of legislation right now in Harrisburg that's called the Whole Home Repairs Act, um, which would provide funds to help uh, remediate older houses, uh, which does have an environmental and climate change component to it. 
Um, we, you know, as you know, houses consume older houses consume more energy. They're less environmentally and energy efficient. So. Uh, all that's kind of interconnected. And then those homes, of course, uh, have problems for people's health, ramifications for people's respiratory health, you know, psychological development. If there's lead in the walls, that can create severe developmental disabilities. So there has been like, I think, a renewed discussion in Pennsylvania and, the, and a critical amount of discussion in the legislature about the intersectionality of environmental justice as a whole and really the way that we build and develop our communities with housing sort of at the core of it. Um, but I also think that there's been a bigger emphasis on, you know, connectivity. How do folks get to and from, you know, where they live and work? And is it accessible in a way where, uh, you know, that they are, you know, able to use public transit? Um, for example, I know that Atlanta has negotiated a lot of agreements with a lot of the industrial sites to provide like direct service bus routes from people's housing to the job site. So that's great because it's literally taking cars off the road, whereas before you might have 40, 50 people um, that were trying to borrow a friend's car. Use like It's making more folks, you know, realize the value and I think the legitimacy of public transit. Um, and, and I think, you know, just more critically, you know, Allentown is blessed. We have a really great and active environmental advisory council. And they have done some really great inventories of the city's carbon footprint, how our buildings consume energy, how our vehicle fleet is not, you know, environmentally efficient. A lot of our vehicles are older. So I would say that there's been success in that because not a lot of municipalities or I think every community is having those conversations and doesn't have that body of engaged citizens that are necessarily doing that depth of research. Uh, so I have to say in Allentown, uh, I think we are doing a lot of really great transformative and, and, and forward-thinking work around how the environment intersects with people's health and well-being. Um, the built environment has a tremendous impact on our physical well-being, our mental well-being. Uh, and as you mentioned, even that sense of community, that ability to be together and belong and find common community spaces that are healthy and vibrant. Um, and water is often a huge part of that, as are our parks, which I was always proud to support, um, and just our open spaces in general. And so um, I think there is now a recognition, at least in Lehigh Valley, that the way we build our communities doesn't just affect you know, how we get to work and how much open space there is. It literally affects how long we live and and particularly how that impacts communities of color because we know that urban areas bear the brunt of environmental uh, issues and, you know, they bear the brunt of air quality issues, they bear the brunt of environmental issues. And so there is absolutely a racial uh, justice and social justice component to that. And part of what we're trying to do is invest in the neighborhoods where those problems are most pervasive so that those folks can experience better, more fulfilling lives full of longevity and good health that they can enjoy with their family. So I hope that answers your question because I, I do think those critical discussions are starting to occur and be put into place with policy, not just rhetoric. Yeah, thank you so much. That's that's really that's really good to hear. Um, I, I don't I couldn't put any of that better into words than you just did. And um, I will also say thank you for your work on the Whole Home Repairs Act because I, I live in Philadelphia. Okay. And that is really, really important to the community. Here. Absolutely. So, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, Leah. Well, we've run short of time. So this has been an extremely riveting and informative discussion. So I'd, my guests have been Ms. Leah Mastropolo, American Rivers Director for Clean Water Supply for the Mid-Atlantic, and Pennsylvania State Representative Joshua Siegel, representing the 22nd Legislative District of Lehigh County. My sincere thanks to both of you for your candid remarks on the issue of the Lehigh River as the seventh most endangered river in the U.S. And best wishes for success in progressing forward on the issues. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you. Absolutely. Pleasure to meet you. 
This is Karen Elchar. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to WDIY. Tune in next Thursday for more Lehigh Valley Discourse, and we'll see you next time on the Elchar Chronicles. If you enjoyed this program, please go to the WDIY website or app to share or become a WDIY member.